This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. And today my guest is Mr. Stephen Holtzman. He is the person that runs the Chicago-based retailer CD Peacock. And he is someone that I have known for quite some time. Stephen, hello. Hello, Ariel. I'm trying to think back to when we first met. And I can't remember exactly when it was, but I do have the distinct memory that you were probably the first serious person in the watch industry to tell me that what I was doing as being a watch blogger was sort of a good idea. You sort of validated it. Do you remember some of those first meetings? Yeah, I do. Actually, I remember meeting you at my house um, in La Jolla. Yeah, yeah. I remember you flew me down. I was living in San Francisco at the time, and you, you wanted to meet. And I remember at the time thinking that it was a little bit strange but now that I know the watch industry is really a relationship-based industry, it makes sense. You, this is, you know, it's 2022 right now, but still, and I want to hear your opinion on this, this is a, a type of business where you have to look the person you're working with in the eye or a lot of bad stuff can happen. Even then, if you know them, a lot of bad stuff can happen. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, is it something special about the watch industry or is it is it just sort of business as it is in the world where, um, you know, rules and fairness and all that matter a lot less than, you know, uh, how's this person helping me today? And is there someone else out there that might help me more? Well, the watch industry, the watch industry is, is something else. You know, once you get bitten by the bug, um, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to get out of it. Right. But, um, so, you know, it's an interesting thing you mentioned about this or being, an addictive quality to it. Like it's, it's something you get into, but there's all these negative sides. And I have at a real sense of altruism, tried to talk about some of the dark sides of the watch industry. And I've, I've always sort of been punished in one way or another for it, but you know, do you think there needs to be more of a conversation around the, the, this interesting weird challenges of, of this industry? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, Ariel, you you always you always kind of went against the tide, and uh, I remember early on when you were first starting to go to the shows, where it was like a, I think a big deal the first time you went to the to the SIHH, and um, because you always covered both you know both the dark and the light side of the story, so that was always um, I think fresh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why you've done so well. <laughs> why why was that so novel? Because you had you have. You were a very prominent person in the street. You commanded a lot of respect. You still command a lot of respect. And you've done your best to support media, I, I guess, you know, in, in many different ways. Why is it that what I was doing that seemed perfectly normal, in your opinion, was inherently something that was against the grain? Like, why was journalism and reporting and talking about ups and downs and, you know, just normal industry analysis, why was that so tab taboo in the watch space? Well, I think, you know, the, the watch brands are they're big on promoting the brands and, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the events were, were supported by the brands. Um, and most people, you know, most people tend to cover the, the you know, the keep keep the keep the line or, or toe the line. They, they tried to, to stay in course. You know, a press release would be would be announced, and uh, everybody would be invited to you know to to look at the new products, and they would you know give their you know their spin on the products. But 
you tend to to always uh, go a little deeper. And I think that's, you know, that was always your thing. And I think you've done well with that. And I'm sure, you know, your, your readers and, and uh, people that listen to your podcast, you know, like that about you. You, you just speak clearly on what you think. So. I appreciate that. And what did and what did you see in me and the generation of media that I represented at that time, you know, about 15 years ago? Because you you figured it out immediately. And again, now that I've been able to compare, a lot of your colleagues required several years longer to sort of like get on board with next generation media. What was it about what I was doing that was just so immediately um you, you know, utilitarian for you. Well, I, again, I think you 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 didn't you didn't do what everyone else did. You kind of really gave your opinion. You covered things that you thought were interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people were were covering only the big brands. You tend, tended to 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 go right or go left and and, and cover things that you found were interesting. Um, and a lot of times, you didn't like the stuff you were looking at. You know, I can remember very clearly. With um, all the photo shoots and all the times that we were together, I, I could always tell your arm, you know, it was very, very distinct that almost every watch, you know, was always shot on your wrist. So um, I like that about you. Thank you. I, I um, So I remember that when we got started together, your brand was Maitre du Temps. And you can go on a blog to watch and see about these spectacular watches. This was a ultra high-end brand that was your brainchild. And, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you had this opportunity that several other people have had, and that is to come up with the watch brand that you wanted. You got to sort of assemble the the dream team of designers and watchmakers. And, and again, the idea was very sound. A lot of market factors changed things. But talk a little bit about why you started Maitre du Tom and what were you trying to do with the brand? You know, I've been in the business now. It's 35 years. When I started Maitre du Tom, it was, um, you know, it was just just north of, of 20 years. And I thought that I, I knew everything that, that I needed to know, to, you know, in, in distribution. Um, I just finished up with my, uh, we were distributing Roger Dubuis in the late 90s into about, 2006, 2007, we had a pretty sizable business with 30 people. We were doing about $30 million in sales. Um, after after we, we, we were through with Dubuis, I decided that I, I, I could create my own brand. I, I knew the markets. Um, I knew what I liked. I had some ideas on, on you know, how to put together a, a brand of my own. So I decided to, like, Annie up and put everything back in um, after a number of years in the industry. Um, I put together what, what I thought was a dream team with Mr. Dubuis, who was actually one of my first watchmakers on, on chapter one and chapter two. Yep. yep. And, um, Christoph, Peter Speak, um, Carrie Voltalainen, Andreas, Daniel Roth. I mean, some of the some of the greatest guys out there. We were actually talking to, to Gerald Genta at the time. There were couple of other, you know, superstars that, that were going to be involved with us. I mean, like an insane dream team. This would be like, you know, the, the, the NBA equivalent of like the all-stars. Like this was, this was top people. It was, you know, it was the best group of guys that I thought could be put into one room and, and, and work together on different projects. So it was a fun idea. It was, uh, you know, it was a long run. I think it was about, I don't know, 13 years of, of, um, you know, with, with the brand 12 years, 13 years and, um, creating movements, you know, starting from scratch, 
project after project. Lots of uh, lots of exciting exciting uh, memories from that from that experience. So it gave me an opportunity to um, you know to work with some of the best stores in the world and, and the best markets in the world and selling at those price points. You know, from I don't know seventy seventy five thousand up to about five hundred thousand dollars. You know, we had some of the some of the most interesting customers that you can imagine in all parts of the I'll bet. Let, let, let's put some of the, the time frame into, into context here. So what year did you start the brand? So I started in 2008. Okay, 2008. So it was right, right after, right after, actually we launched right after the crash. So that was just about when the market hit bottom. And I started a blog to watch in 2007. So this must have been literally several months after I got started as well. Yeah. Now, what were some of the most the the biggest unanticipated things that occurred? Because all these crazy things happened after you started the brand, and like you said, you were twenty year plus veteran. Yeah, you, you felt that you understood markets and production and consumers. Yet all these new things come up that you can't anticipate. What were some of the just I don't know most insane things or serious things that came up that you never would have anticipated? Well, first of all. The, the list is, is long. Some of the challenges were putting different personalities together. I didn't realize what a challenge that could be. Um, most of the time, Our artist wrangling, as we call it. Yeah. It, it, to get one, you know, one great one is, is, you know, is amazing to put two or three together was, was um, it was easier said than done. Um, but some of the biggest challenges I would say Probably for me, understanding the production process in in Switzerland and how long things take to to actually, you know, how much time it takes to 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 really get get the, the get get something produced. So, I didn't, any exa- any examples, maybe? You know, we were just with with chapter one. It was almost. Two and a half years to um, you know from from the beginning, and we were working with you know Claire A manufactured the components um, and did a lot of the assembly on that watch, and um, just to think that you know it would take that long to um, to get something from from start to finish. I didn't I didn't understand or anticipate the the amount of time that it takes to create a watch. Now, is this a necessary engineering and manufacturing time or is it time because of people's schedules, motivations, you know, what what accounted for that time? Because clearly it, in your mind it could have been done faster. Yeah, well, creating the watch, first of all, the making the components was was time consuming. We were doing everything in small series, so it was it was almost you know it started off as a you know making a prototype and then you know testing it and then you know working through you know the different problems that arise and then correcting the problems the list is really long about uh, about the entire process but um i didn't i didn't really understand that as a distributor you know it was all so easy there was a you know there was a a release. There were there were different you know different characteristics to the watch, and then there was um, you know a period of time before the watches were shipped into the distribution channels. Okay, so w- w- was it more of a humbling or an infuriating experience to wait that long? 
Um, I would say, you know, on my side, it was, it, you know, it, it was infuriating because I didn't, <laughs> I, I, I under, I under anticipated, I didn't anticipate the amount of time that it takes to to bring something forward, even just testing products, you know, the, the right. amount of time of, you know, the amount of decisions that had to be made. If you, if you, you know, at every, every decision, you, you either go right or left. And once you commit you know, there, there are, you know, more and more crossroads and it was really, it was really a exhausting process to get from, from beginning to end. Some of the projects took three years, four years in, in actual, from, from the time the idea was, was put together till, till the time the product came to market. So you really have to be financially strong. You really have to, you know, sometimes if you come up with something that, uh, that you're excited about in, in 2008, by the time you get to, to 2009, 2010, 2011, you still have to be, you know, just as excited about it. So, well, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because, and again, I, 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 I really want to spend a lot of time on this topic because I'm fascinated by it, but I see a lot of people, especially nowadays and at much lower price points, getting into watches as though it's some type of get rich quick scheme. You put a minimal investment in there and then you sell this product that has such a high margin that you make out like a bandit. And what they find is you end up having to put a lot more money into production. You have to end up putting a lot more money into marketing. And it, it, you know, it's, it's really almost a vanity thing. And so what I've, I've thought is that, you know, People who have a portfolio of companies or a corporation that has a bunch of like mainstream commercial brands, like a watch brand is like a a vanity brand that they have on the top that like basically ends up costing them more money than making them. But the result are cool watches and parties and cred and stuff like that. Would you say there's something to that that in a lot of ways it's it's really more a vanity company? Like if you're doing it to make money in a short term, like you've got the wrong idea. Yeah, it's it's like I mean, you'd be better off buying a yacht than, than starting a watch brand. Okay, so that's an amazing point because anyone who's ever had a yacht knows how expensive the upkeep is and that what do they say? The the happiest day is the day you buy it and the day you sell it. Exactly. Um, and you're saying that that's actually a better experience than a watch brand. Well, I'd say that's you'd have a better chance of of of, um, of not doing so bad actually buying a yacht. So knowing what what happens to the value of yacht. So it's so it's a gamble. So starting a watch brand is a is is a gamble. Is that why it sort of attracts some of these weird characters? Because I've always wondered why it attracts some of the people. It does it like when I first got into it, I met you know pretty reasonable people like yourself that I could speak to. I'm like, okay, I can understand the mentality here. But then as I got deeper, you know, and you of course know this, you start meeting like some of the most ridiculous people. And I'm like, is that because this is a high risk environment that just attracts people that are okay with crazy risk? Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but I know that you know, <laughs> in, in, in the industry, when you have a brand, um, you know, the brand is is so often connected to the person that started it, the person that runs it, um, you know, when you're dealing in, in luxury products, I mean, the amount of times that you you would be photographed, you know, at any at, at any given time were, you know, it was it was it was a very hard thing to get used to. And um, once you get used to it, you start to, you know, it's like you start to believe that you are the customer. And uh the reality is, you know, when you create a watch brand, or at least on my side, was, you know, I was a waiter in the restaurant, and and I was lucky to 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 serve some fine food, and I was lucky to you know to to wait on some great clients, but in the end, 
you know, I, I was always, I was always the waiter and we were always in the service business. So yeah, to be able to separate yourself after a while, you, you start to think that, you know, that, that you are that customer. And um, just because you created something that, that you would maybe serve to yourself, um, you know, I was, I was never the customer. So it's hard to separate the two. Um, yeah, lots of challenges. I mean, when you, when you travel and do these, these, um, you know, press tours, you know, you could sit in the period of, uh, of, of a day or two and, and, uh, you know, end up being covered in, in 30, 40, 50 magazines in a city and then go on to another city. So I, I could imagine how it must feel to be a rock star or, or a celebrity for, so that was one of the exciting. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a, it's a high, it's a real high for sure. Yeah. I want to go back to Maitre Dutamp and talk about it more because I think that you were very much ahead of your time, but because of the era when it came out during the that financial crash and things like that, I don't know if there was enough discussion from an entrepreneurial perspective about the things you did right. Um, you were very much influenced by some brands that had come out a little bit before, um, you know, MBNF in some degree, the stuff that that Max Booster was doing at, at Harry Winston and things like that. But who would you say? Uh, were some of your influences? Was it just these gentlemen that made these amazing watches and you just sort of wanted to see them do an all-star team? Or were there other businesses out there that were doing things? You're like, you know what? I could do something like that. No, I think the the, the first influence was was a brand called Goldfile that came out with like a, a dream. Oh, the v- was this the Vianney Halter thing? He was part yeah, of Vianney that? Vianney was in it. Um, yeah. there, there were six or seven. Um, Antoine Peruzzo was there. But there were six or seven guys, and they all okay. they all did one watch. Um, and I thought that was that was a great concept. And I think the next year, or, or, you know, when I started, I think I was like about the same time that Max started. He was, we were, we were both actually developing at the same time. He had so much more experience in, in product and product development than I did and had a, a much better idea of what he was getting into. But yeah, at the time we were both pretty much starting the same thing at the same time. His concept was, you know, based on, on, uh, you know, more of a, of a dreamy watch and, and, uh, you know, he really had a great, a great vision of what he wanted to create. Um, I always thought that my strength was I knew the markets and, and that would, uh, I knew what the end was supposed to be like, so it would be easier to, um, you know, create. create Explain that. Explain that. What 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 did you know about the markets? What did markets want to get? How would you articulate, you know, the type of need that the Maitre Dutant watches were, were trying to satisfy? Well, working with the customer and working in the stores and working with retailers for, you know, twenty years. I knew what it was supposed to feel like at the end. Um, I, 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 I didn't know what it was supposed to be like in the beginning, and that was something I was missing. But I knew what it was like when everything was done right. I knew, I knew what it was like when you presented something to a customer, and they had, you know, no problem coming up with fifty or hundred thousand dollars to buy a, a watch or a few hundred thousand dollars. Actually, with the buoy at our peak, I think I sold a million dollar timepiece. So. I knew what that was. I knew what that what that was about, and I knew how that felt. So, the challenge was was creating the beginning of the story, and and uh, you know, in that regard, I wanted to kind of take my experience with with working with Mr. Dubuis, and um, we traveled to different countries with him, 
And uh, it was like, you know, like like showing up with a rock star and, and a celebrity in, in different markets. So, so how did you personally enjoy that celebrity status? You know, that's obviously very different than just distributing and marketing watches. It's a new type of feeling. As a business person, as a personal person, what did you do with that type of popularity and esteem? Are you, are you talking about when I was distributing Dubuis or, or, or doing it with Maitre du Temps? Well, I mean, it's a little, both of them, you had sort of the same feeling, but like you said, you're, you're as a business person, receiving a new kind of high. It's, it's a different high than selling an expensive watch. It's, I'm seen as a popular, important person. People want to listen to me. I'm being treated well. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, it can be a shock to the ego. A lot of people don't know what to do with it and, and screw up. Um, but it's, it's also something that is, um, it's a very powerful emotion that not everyone gets to feel. Yeah, well, first of all, I enjoyed, I, I had an easier time doing it with Mr. Dubois selling Roger Dubois. That was, you know, it, it, it wasn't personal. It, it was, it was easier to, uh, I found it much easier once, once it was about me selling something that I created, it was almost like, you know, I started to sweat. So the, the, the idea of, you know, the lights, camera action and, um, being put on the spot, that wasn't so easy because I wasn't, I don't think I really at that time understood the power of, of my own voice. And right. you know, I was trying to, I was so often trying to, to combine what I wanted with, with, with what I, what I thought my customers wanted. And um, yeah, that was, that was not as easy as. Well, many people prefer to be the manager than the talent, right? The, the, the talent's always the one in the hot seat that has, you know, all the expectations on them to say the right thing, you know, and, and they don't even give you media training right beforehand. Yeah, it, it wasn't so easy. And it was also, I mean, think about it, it was everything was done in, in, you know, 20, 30 different countries. So, yeah, you know, different cultures, different, um, you know, to be able to get it right in, in, in so many places. Um, you know, I have great respect for all, all of the, the people that have, that have gone before me and come after me that have, that have nailed it. And, uh, yeah, it, you know, in in creating a watch, you have to one, you have to be lucky. Two, you have to do so many things right. And uh, if you only do eighty percent of it, it, it's it's not enough. You really have to you have to, you know, get, get it get enough of those of those important items right. And you have to be lucky. And these are humbling lessons. Like like the things you're saying are absolutely true. They're difficult to learn. And and I think what's important is even though you had 20 years of experience, you're sort of describing a situation where you admit that you were a novice in some areas. And after learning things, you had a greater appreciation of what, uh, uh, you know, what it takes to create the full package, which is uh, the sales and, uh, of course, the marketing. But I want to talk more about the sales side of things, because in my opinion, you are a very important person in, in American watch industry history because you set the trend of the watch retailer um, really being suspicious of, of the brand's intentions and having a very a much more defensive relationship, necessarily so. Um, you know, this goes back to the, the Roger Dubuis thing, and I'll, I'll try to give a little bit of a primer. I don't want to go into too much detail, and that was a big protracted thing. But the problem was essentially this. 
if you are a third-party distributor in a market like America or anywhere, and you build up a brand, in this case it was Roger de Bouy, uh, with marketing and retailers and relationships, and you've got this whole um, great business going, um, the brand that you're selling could come in there and be like, oh, thanks for developing this market for me. Uh, we no longer we need to work with you. We're going to have our own subsidiary and do it ourselves and enjoy uh, the fruits of all these crops that you had to labor and plant and, and, and all that. Um, and you had some clever ways of receiving uh, a degree of, of, of just reward for your efforts that so was not easy for you to do so. But it signaled to everyone else, uh, really around the world, that you cannot be a, a good, long-term, steady money-making partner with a brand. If they feel that they can make more money, relationships be damned, they're going to try to do it. And, and most of them have not actually been particularly successful at it. Having a local distributor in a lot of ways still makes a lot of, of good business sense for many brands. But um, how would you sort of articulate the context of, of sort of what I'm talking about from your perspective? Okay, so some of the, some of the challenges were if you were, you know, if, if you created too big of a business, um, you could get replaced. If you didn't create a big enough business, you couldn't stay in business. And there was and no one told you the lines, right? No one told you those parameters. No, I mean, you know, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from poor judgment. And, um, you know, some of the challenges of being a distributor was being able to, you know, invest in the brand and um, investing means time. It means, you know, an incredible amount of, of effort and, um, yeah, it, it really it really took time to to build, and, and we built brands that have had hundreds of stores, and I built brands that have had thousands of stores. But yeah, getting getting it just right was was not easy. It was it was always a, a difficult juggling act. There were times, you know, I remember, you know, in the eighties, um, so many of the watch brands, you know, they, they've they had partners for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. Um, the Japanese brands, they always had the same partners, you know, in the same markets. So there were, there were challenges, but yeah, as a, as a, as a, as a, you know, to, as an entrepreneur to build a business where you have a term to, to be successful, you really have to, you really have to manage that fine line between, you know, how much business you can do, and hopefully, you know, pick pick the right brand that could be successful, and pick the right people that 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 you can go longer with. So, but you know, and again, I think that it's it's probably healthy that you're speaking about it in, in that sort of way. But the reality was is that you were there busting your ass to to sell a product, and the product had issues. You know, a lot of them, you know mechanically had to be fixed a lot and things like that. Like you're it was not about, an easy, you're talking about the debris early years. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, and that was, that was always a, a big headache for you, I'm sure. And you, you, you made a great market and they just basically said, thank you. Uh, your work is done here. Um, we're going to take this away from you. And, and not even, not even like offer some type of alternative, have the chutzpah, if you will, to say, we know your market fine. We can handle all the relationships the same way. And I mean, 
look, let's be honest. Let's look at the history of Roger Dubuis running in America. It was still best when you were doing it. <laughs> it's always been worse yeah. uh, and smaller and less effective than when you were doing it. And I think that giving someone some margin so that they have an incentive of running a market well is not such a bad thing. Yeah, uh, we, we had at the time, just to put it in perspective, like 2000, I think it was 2004, 2005, we had 60 points of sales. We were doing 25 to 30 million in sales. And we were a third, maybe a little bigger than a third of the entire brand's market. The, the challenge is, and we were lucky, we started early. So we were one of the first distributors. It was us and the Asian market that, that came on early and the Italian market. And um, yeah, the, the, the problems that the other markets experienced, we were lucky enough or maybe smart enough to have come up with a solution to deal with some of those problems. The problems being the early quality problems. And this is all before Richmond was involved with, with the brand. But in the early days, the problem was the watches were beautiful, but they, they left the factory a little too quick. And um, that meant that so many of, of those watches had to be disassembled and reassembled. We had a team of five or six watchmakers at the end, and we were pretty much starting everything. You know, everything would go through QC, everything would end up or the bulk of the product would end up um, getting worked on. Um, and we, we corrected something before it became too big of a problem that was not fixable. So the U.S. market, as a result of, of that um, extra step, um, put us in a much favorable position. The other markets had problems with quality and they didn't know what to do. And I don't think anybody else um, at the time thought enough to to make all of those changes so we would actually buy watches and buy components to to service watches all at all at the same time so we had the ability and the components and and the know-how with most of the most of the movements to be able to to do the needed work to prevent do you, do you think that a fair business case can be made that a brand not doing a hostile takeover to start a subsidiary is better in the long run for making money? A brand not doing a hostile takeover. Okay, so basically what I'm saying is continuing to work with a third-party distributor that more or less fully, fully manages a market such as the United States and you know sells you the watch as a wholesale, the whole traditional thing, that is a better business case to make money versus trying to own the market and do everything yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So to to uh, it, it's hard to say. It. First of all, you have to have it's timing, and you have to be you have to be you have to really know how to manage the market. It depends on on the partner on both sides. There has to be good chemistry. It's it's really, I don't think there's an answer that, you know, either way is right or wrong. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. 
Right now, the blog to watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the blog to watch Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The blog to watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the blog to watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Okay. Look, I mean, I'll, I'll just give you some of my the context here of what I'm thinking. I do not think that the subsidiary model works in the best interest of the brands in many instances. It definitely doesn't work in the best interest of the market. I mean, what we've seen in the United States, and I've analyzed this closely because this is my market, is that there's been a systematic withdrawal of budget from locals to essentially um, smaller offices run by you know, temporary people that aren't intended to live in the long run. The idea is they are truly trying to manage everything and run everything from Europe. They install people that don't make decisions, but rather follow instructions from Europe. Um, they make sure st- salaries, for the most part, stay uh, the highest ones to, to Europeans. They're they're actually not sharing money with the market. They're not saying we're doing business in America, so we're going to let some Americans make money. That has been something that they've tried to strip away, and I think that that's wrong. Because if you don't have the profit motive for Americans and the American watch industry, no one's going to try or do anything. And what you've seen is this is this uh, removal of all these amazing personalities. Um, you're one that stayed, but a lot of people left that were great market builders. The moment Europe made it clear, we, we're not going to allow you to make any money or any real money, they just walked away and said, ha-ha, we'll do something else. And I think that that's a shame because – Given the size of the American market, it's really underdeveloped. There's some saturation in the major cities, but it's it's truly an, an opportunity country. And I think it's withheld by a, a certain sentiment, and I'm not trying to pass judgment here, by a lot of Europeans that don't want to share profit. Yeah, again, that's, that's a hard one to, to, just to make a general comment. I think that the brands, you know, the brands today... They, they have a message they want to deliver. They, they manufacture the product. They sell product, you know, both wholesale and retail. Um, the, the writing is on the wall where, you know, people in the middle, whether it's a family-owned jeweler or whether it's a, a distributor, um, it's not as, as, you know, certain, certain brands have, have policies for, for long-term commitments and long-term relationships. And I think, that's important in the U.S. I think very often it's great having local partners running offices or, or, or running operations. I think it's a little harder when they, you know, when someone's moved from, I don't know, Malaysia into, into um, the U.S. To, to, to run a market versus somebody who's grown up in the industry and, and, and you know, understands all the 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 innuendos and the local issues. Yeah, I, I can understand both sides. And I, I, you know, with things are much more homogenous now. You know, if you if you go to a store, you see the exact same same display in um, in Soho as as you would in Singapore. Singapore. So it's um, it, it's it's changed a lot. And, and um, you know, the message the message is 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 very consistent in market to market. 
I think having a local a local person that understands the market and understands the customers and the needs, I think is great. Some of the brands tend to, you know, to, to I think to hire more people from the market, and I think that's that's a positive. It, I think it takes a little longer to bring someone in from another market and train them in this market. So yeah, it, it's 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 a tough a, a tough one, and I understand. It's also politically parts. sensitive. It's hard. It's hard to say maybe what you really think because there's a lot of egos at stake, right? Yeah. <laughs> always always a funny part of this industry. I, I just want to sort of go back to the point I made earlier about how the experience that you had with Dubuis sent a sort of signal to a lot of people in the American market about how safe it may be or not be to invest in a brand. And what you have is a standoff often between retailer and brand as to who is supposed to invest to develop the market. And the retailers, like no brand, you since you obviously own and control everything, you invest. And the brand is like, no retailer, it's your market, you should invest because you'll you'll receive the most direct reward. And the retailer's like, but if we do a good job, like Stephen Holtzman, you'll just take it away from us. So how do we end this standoff between brand and retailer in terms of who invests to develop the market? No one has answered this yet, and I think it's a serious problem. Yeah, well, again, it's an ongoing challenge, and and you know you have the brand, the retailer, and 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 in in our case, the distributor. Um, so the distributor was we were investing for both the the brand and for the retailer. So there was a lot of a lot of good partnerships that were going on on both sides. So going back to your question, it's 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 there's a fine line to to uh, you know what the I guess selecting selecting the right partner on both sides, whether it be a retailer or whether whether it be a brand, are, are critical. And um, yeah, you know, if, if if you're lucky and you 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 know you you go along with with your partner, you have a great business. So you're talking you're talking about again this beginning of a conversation relationship industry partner what makes a good partner and why is it so easy for these uh, quote unquote partnerships to to go awry where there's misunderstandings and I mean there's 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 vitriol between a lot of people in the industry a lot of hurt feelings and things like that like talk a little bit about this especially for people that are more novice in the industry and may may want to avoid some mistakes if possible yeah well what makes a good partner is the people. Um, you have to assume the product is is right, else, else you shouldn't be starting the partnership. And you have to you have to assume the retailer is right. So picking good people. What what does that mean by by good people? We're talking about smart people, loyal people, trustworthy people. Like what what does that mean in this context? All, all of the above. You have to you have to have a, a strong retailer. You know you have to have somebody who's got financial might. That's that's critical. Um, you have to have somebody who's involved in the business. I think working with with retailers that are, you know, in the stores is, is key to success. Um, you know, it's 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 a little difficult. I think more difficult to work with some of the bigger groups um, because you don't know who's behind the counter. I know when we were launching a brand or when we were distributing brands, um, the connection with the store, with the staff being in the store, doing the training. Now training is all done, you know, with modules online. There's maybe less person-to-person, you know, combat, hand-to-hand combat. But um, 
you know, back in the day, you know, we would literally be in, in, in store after store, week after week, um, training, meeting with people that that was, you know, connecting with with consumers, doing events. Those were all critical things to that led to, to success. But what makes a good partner? I mean, you really have to be lucky and you have to pick the right brand and the right person. I think what's important for me to comment here is that in most business contexts, the person's personality, while important, is less important because there's sort of built-in incentives to the transaction itself. Um, you know, you go to a store and you're and you're buying from a salesperson there. You don't have to, you know, measure the guy up and ask is, is you know, you understand that, you know, if there's a problem with the purchase, you're going to come back and complain. It's in their interest to sort of do you right. But in the watch space, um, there's a lot more of a fluid concept of what it means to properly do business with someone. Um, there's not a lot of established norms, it seems. There's, there's a lot of people sort of making it up and <clears throat> seeing how the chemistry between people are goes. Um, it's, it's such a fluid concept that is so much about how teamwork is able to create um, you know, more than the sum of the parts that you really can't anticipate these things moving into it. So what you're saying is like the best thing you have is just a simple you know, character analysis. Like, do they seem like someone I'd want to be friends with? Yeah. Do, do they seem like someone you want to be friends with for a long time? You know, it's a lot of these relationships are, are short term, you know, whether it be with with the brand or or, or with the with the retailer. Um, so you really you know, it's 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 like picking a partner, picking, a, you know, a husband or wife. I mean, you, you have to you have to use your best, you know, your best intuition and your 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 best judgment to, um, you know, to to pick the right people. <laughs> no, it, it, look, these are hard questions, but you, you have to consider yourself a mentor, right? You you mentored me very early on. I'm sure you've mentored many other people. This industry, because it lacks a lot of foundational education and great training and things like that, relies on experts like yourself and good mentors. I mean, think of the people that are good watch brand managers because they served under um, Hayek Senior, for example, um, Biver being among them and, and, and many others. There's like a couple of like key leaders in this industry that luckily might touch a few others that learned underneath them and then go out and, and use some of that. But this is still an industry that is driven by a cult of personality, whether that's in management or charisma or design. Um, it isn't so much led by market forces. And not a lot of people understand this. And I'd love your opinion on, on sort of these interesting topics. Yeah, well, there, there, there are some, you know, you, you mentioned Jean-Claude Biver. I just, I just read an article about him. I don't know, I printed it out. Every time I, every time I hear him speak, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm motivated just, just hearing it. Same with Gunter Blumwein. I mean, there's so many, so many great, uh, you know, superstars, you know, Mr. Hayek, um, you know, to, to have, to have had opportunities to, you know, to, to be in their presence, to, to, you know, to, to listen to them speak, to watch them grow brands, to see them make so many good decisions in a row. That's been a, a huge thrill. Um, and, you know, again, if you just think of all the people that you know that that were you know in those those you know top key positions that worked with some of these some of these great leaders and the experiences they had, um, you know, there, there's a lot of them that are still out there today, you know, doing the same thing and and uh, you know making it work. How do we make everyone else in the watch industry 
um, get up to pace a little bit. Because what we're talking about is maybe 5%, if that, of the members of the watch industry have that charisma and that aptitude. The other 90, 95%, in a lot of instances, are actually pretty not mediocre workers. How do we increase the competence of the 95%? Yeah, that's like saying, you know, how do we, you know, how do we make, it, <laughs> how do we make everybody that goes into college, you know, graduate with, uh, you know, with honors? Again, I, I can speak for myself, and, and you know, I've gotten all of my good lessons not from doing things right, but from doing things wrong. You know, and I, I think of all the m- mistakes I've made. You know, that's pretty much that's defined my career, and that's defined, you know, what what kind of you know, what, what kind of business person I am or, or, or what, you know, what kind of integrity I have. Um, so, I mean, it, it takes experience. And, and, and uh, again, that goes back to the point we were talking about before about the advantages and disadvantages to having a, a good local partner as a distributor, um, helping a brand, you know, grow a market um, or picking people from the market that know the market, that have worked in the market. You know, and some of the benefits to, to you know to, to you know shopping locally. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Ariel, you, bring up, you bring up so many good points that you know all of these points you, you could really play either side of that of that argument. And I understand, um, I understand it. And you know, there's there's a part of this that that you have to have you know good judgment, good intuition, and and um, you know have made enough mistakes to be able to you know, do the right thing. So I'm glad to hear you say that because, again, I think that there are a lot of important questions in this space that not enough people are asking. And if you never ask these questions, you're, of course, never going to come to to answers. Um, This industry has a lot of people who, maybe too much so, try to stay in their own lane. I always joke about how, you know, we get all excited about these trade shows. And rather than it being real trade shows in terms of like there being like, uh, things for everyone's benefit. It's just one big hall that people have their own meetings, right? It's just like, yeah. it, it, it's a collection of people doing their own thing. And I don't always understand why that is. Well, listen, what's what I've always enjoyed about you, Ariel, is you, you've you spoken your mind. You've always, you've always said, you know, I like this. I don't like this. I don't, you know, I don't understand why this works. I don't understand why people are buying this. Um, you haven't gone down the road that most other people go. Um, and I think, in in you know there's something about about this industry that it, it's very personal and if you if you're lucky enough to be able to you know choose something that you like choose something you know like a consumer would you know not buy something because it's an investment but buy something because the product really speaks to them they understand and appreciate it you know from a different perspective or from their own perspective then you're you know you're very fortunate but yeah, I can't, I, I don't know why others, uh, you know, I don't know wh- how to get everybody else, you know, or, or to get others to, you know, to, to follow the same path. But um, yeah. <laughs> I, okay. So let's talk about CD Peacock. Um, it's a retailer um, in Chicago. This is the family business that you now run. It's a watch store. Um, first, uh, what do you want people to know about CD Peacock? Well, What's exciting about Peacock is this year is our 185th anniversary. So it's, wow. it's the oldest business in, in Chicago. It was incorporated the same year that the city of Chicago was incorporated. So some, some fun facts there. 
Um, and it was it always a watch retailer? It was a watch and jewelry retailer. Interesting, interesting. Who who were the people that founded it? The founder was the Peacock family. They created it, you know, 185 years ago. It's it's been in the family, I think, up until the mid sixties after and that, that wasn't like a marketing name because it's like, you know, you're, you're with watches and jewelry, you're, you're peacocking. <laughs> no, that was actually their last name. Oh, okay. Coincidence, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah, in the, in the, I think it was the mid sixties, late sixties, it was bought by Dayton Hudson, the parent of Marshall Fields. And, um, in the, in the eighties, it was, it was bought by Brooks of Canada, Brooks and Sons. So, it was, uh, you know, part of a group of some of the the bigger, better old guild stores that were um, in different parts of the country. Our family got invo- got involved in in um, the early '90s. We bought bought the brand out of bankruptcy, so they were closed for a few months. We came in and uh, you know bought the brand, the stores, the inventory, and um, yeah, we rebuilt it from there. So. What what does that mean these days to build a store in a city like Chicago? I mean, like it might be obvious to people in the industry, but like, what's involved in that? Do you add brands? Do you do more marketing? Do you remodel the place? Like, how do you stay competitive as a sort of watch and and jewelry store um, in, in in circa twenty twenty two? Or is it just carrying Rolex? Is that enough? Well, I mean that helps, but. I, I, I can only tell you, you know, from from my own perspective, what what I see with what I've seen with retailers, not not with this business that I've been involved with, which is a family business. But by the way, I've it's always been a family business, and for one reason or another, it was never I was never involved with this part of the business. I was always on the other side of the business, selling two stores like this. So. Um, what it takes, what I can tell you, what it takes to build a store, you know, back back to where we started is you have to have the right people. You have to have a, you know, you have to be in the store working behind the counter and um, you have to get to know your customers. You know, of course, having things you like, having brands you like are important. Hopefully you pick, you pick strong brands and uh, you stay with them. So, and the brands you you mentioned that CD Peacock has actually really resonate with me as a lot of the types of clientele in Chicago, like nice, established luxury brands, more or less conservative, nothing particularly risky, um, just sort of like you know, just like good old conservative high end watches. Yeah, Chicago is a conservative market, like New England. There are certain markets that you know it, it's unlike maybe New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. So having having some of the big brands is great. It helps. You know, it's it's the you know the main part of our our, our watch business. How um, would Maitre du Temps do in CD Peacock? Maitre du Temps was you know at the time I I, I sold Maitre du Temps to CD Peacock. Uh, you know I sold it to actually I had three three accounts in Chicago of which Peacock oh, wow. was was the smaller of the three. And again the reason the reason that um peacock was was the smallest of my three accounts was because the the owner operator wasn't involved with the store so in order for an independent brand to to do well in a, in a market you really need to have a good connection with the owner of the store and and the owner of the store has to to really love the product or love the type of product and when that happens it's you know it's it's perfect 
So yeah, again, going to a, going to a chain store, going to a store that's owned by a corporation, it's not as easy to get that same kind of emotion in all the sales. So that was a big element. Now let's talk about you know the Rolex question. I don't want to dedicate too much time to this, but you are a Rolex detail uh, retailer, um, and it is a weird time to be a Rolex retailer. Um, it's you know the market is that it's very high demand for Rolex uh, for a number of reasons, um, and that has put people who sell Rolex in an interesting position where they don't have a lot of inventory and can be very choosy about how they sell. Um, do you do you sell watches any differently now in terms of Rolex than you did a while ago? Um, you know, what's that like from the retailer perspective? Well, I, I can tell you with Rolex, it's 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 been an amazing um, process. Rolex insists that we focus on the experience in the store. The amount of of you know, it's it's the one thing my wife and I are, are both passionate about is trying to create an experience in, in a difficult time when, when, you know, the demand is, is so high for Rolex and, and um, we're trying to, to make sure that the people that walk through the door and, and may not see what they want, leave the store with a smile on their face. And, and that's been a challenge. So Rolex has been teaching us to up our game and to provide like an enhanced experience which may be something as simple as, you know, getting to know our customer, you know, following up with our customer, finding out what our customer is looking for, trying to, to keep the connection, trying to, to celebrate moments, you know, in, in, in the sale process or moments in the relationship process. It's really, they've really been incredible about helping us to enhance the, the entire experience. You know, all the brands are now using the word experience in, 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 in making a sale. And I understand it so much better now that I've, I've been on the other side of this, you know, trying to provide the experience as a supplier and trying to um, provide the experience as a, as a, as a retailer. So it's been a, it's been a nice, uh, you know, full circle to, uh, you know, to, to, to be on both sides of that of, of that challenge but yeah we're very lucky to to have like a long relationship with rolex we also you know tutors is, is another brand that we work with same kind of uh you know same kind of every week when we have uh you know a tutor training or there's new staff in the store um the sales rep comes in and uh you know by the time they leave i, I feel like you know it, that kind of uh, that kind of training and and, and you know and in, in, in how to work with the customer and, and how to explain the brand and how to you know talk about the heritage of the brand and, and the products is is phenomenal. Yeah, they do they do an an amazing job with training. It's it beats almost everyone else out of the water. You know immediately when you hear stories about other retailers that that engage in behavior like holding Rolex watches hostage unless you spend a bunch of other money and other things. How does that make you feel emotionally? Because that's obviously not uh, the type of reputation or experience that retailers want uh, people to associate with buying anything. Well, it, it's hard to comment. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I hear all kinds of things, you know, being on both sides of, of, of the counter and, um, you know, trying to, I'm trying to to deal with the things that I ha that I have control over. So, 
I know with my own with my own team, you know, we, we we're constantly we're constantly, you know, trying to shift the culture and constantly trying to, you know, when somebody enters the store to make it, you know, like they're coming into our house and say, well, welcome to the CD Peacock family. You know, things like that help us to, you know, shift the culture. When I hear about other stores that, you know, may be doing something, it's, you know, it's easy to jump on the, the bandwagon and say, oh, you know, I can't believe they did this or I can't believe it. I mean, I don't know what others are doing. I, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard enough time or I'm having challenges, you know, just in, in, in my own backyard, just trying to make sure that everybody on our team is 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 consistently giving the same message. I don't know how others do it. I'm not sure what other people do. Tough one to tough one to jump in on. How do you grow as a business, as a retailer these days? Is it having more stores? Is it having an expanded online and e-commerce presence? Like, I guess it might be different for everyone, but for you, how do you how do you expand and, and grow what it is that you're doing? Well, again, I, I'm new at this, so my my comments on how to expand would be limited to you know my past year of of you know of of engagement. What I'm finding is the experience that that the brands are talking about, the consistency, service. There, there are there are some you know some elements that are just basic good concepts to you know things that I learned as a, as as a distributor that 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 apply you know as, as a retailer. Um, training, follow up. You know, big a big word today with with all of the brands is you know CRM, customer relationship management. Um, trying to stay engaged with our with our customers, trying to anticipate what our customers want. Yeah, delivering delivering a consistent message. And there's part of the American business culture that is obsessed with customer satisfaction in a way that doesn't exist. In, from what I've seen. In a lot of the European culture, where you know, as a consumer, you feel more valued in America, and of course, you're more followed in America. But um, it's a, I think, as a consumer, it's a lot more pleasurable to do business in America than in a place like Europe. And so, when the Europeans come here and try to manage um, everything related to the retail experience here, when they want to run the brand, they don't necessarily understand the expectations that American consumers have as well as all these incredible techniques and skills and innovative ways of enhancing uh, relationships that Americans, uh, via the culture and the mentality here, are at the forefront of the world of creating. And I'm really happy you said that because I I, I sort of like to pound home, you know, uh, Swiss are better at making watches than Americans, you know, like for the most part. And Americans are probably better at selling watches for the most part than Swiss. Why can't everyone just sort of have their lane and live in it in, in a sort of mutually beneficial way? Yeah, I agree with you. Listen, there are different cultures. Shopping in Japan, you know, doing business in Japan is, is, is so much different than, you know, doing business in, 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 in France. If I'm not mistaken, when you walk into a store in, in France as, as the, the customer, it would be expected that the customer would actually say hello to the to the to the store <laughs> you know when, when you you can walk right into your, right like thank you for being here so yeah. i can do business with you <laughs> it's funny but you know it's it's a little thing and um 
you know, it's 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 just a, a, a different culture. When you come into a store in the U.S., or even when you have a discussion, you know, in the U.S., you would get you know maybe more people talking more, saying a lot of things. It, it's it's a different a different culture. Not that one is 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 right or wrong, um, but I, again, going back to where we started, I think it's 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 a, a comfortable experience you know, doing business in the U S it, it, it's a comfort, you know, it's, it's, I mean, for you or I, it's our comfort food. It's what, it's what we're used to, um, you know, try to do something like that in, in, in Japan, you know, or, or, or in, um, in France, it's completely different. Uh, this is a, this is a great place to end. Um, Stephen Holtzman from CD Peacock, Stephen, any last plugs or anything you recommend the audience to check out, uh, related to your store? Well, anybody that's in Chicago, it'd be great to, to uh, you know, to, to have the opportunity to meet meet uh, customers. We're looking forward. I, I didn't mention the area that we're we're opening up a, um, a twenty thousand square foot store, which will open the end of this year, which will have a, a full restaurant, full bar, and wow. a digital experience, a proposal room, like half a dozen amazing different, uh, you know different elements that have never been incorporated in a retail store sounds in, exciting in the world so yeah okay so uh see peacock in chicago and uh look forward to their upcoming uh large and fantastic space thank you for listening to this episode of the superlative podcast thanks ariel thank you for listening to another episode of the superlative podcast support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform for questions comments and ideas please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.